Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, Scott. Hey, Cole. How are you, man? I'm great. Good. Today um, should be a very interesting episode. We're going to be talking about different types of welfare and government orchestrated cash redistributions and so forth. But before we do, let's remind people of our principles of this podcast. The guiding principles. Yes. Sacred cows make great barbecue. That's one. We'll we are we are bros before politicos. That's number three. Okay. And number two, let your flag fly proudly. Which is going to happen very much It is. Today. We are going to fly some flags today. <laughs> So there are so many places where you and I agree on a number of things. I think we'll get to a deep difference today. That may not be evident early on, but I think as we get further and further into this, it exposes something where you and I have a fundamental difference in the relationship between our Christianity and our participation in the state. Yes, and so... The guiding principle of bros before politicos will also be evident today because we are so different, yet we are still Christian brothers who appreciate each other. One of the most puzzling things I say to people, and I don't say it in order to be puzzling, I just note their reaction, is that it's – to me, it's pretty clear how I separate the Cole who is a citizen of the United States with the Cole who is a Christian, a member of the way, a member of the kingdom of heaven. Those are two very separate spheres for me, and it's pretty easy, in my mind at least, to separate those two things. So I'm going to talk for a little bit about what being a libertarian does in my social circles and with my students whom I teach and have great discussions with and my fellow churchgoers who sometimes ask me about this, uh, I'm going to enter into this subject through telling listeners the dialogues I have with them and some of the main questions they ask me, particularly during election years when people are talking about political issues and how they might vote and who might be representing what position and so forth. And then I will back off and let Scott respond to anything he wishes to and let the discussion go from there. How does that sound? That sounds good. I I do think it's important to note that you think you are beset by nincompoops. You are surrounded by you are surrounded by liberals in your religious and academic life from your point of view, right? Mostly. And I want to be careful about the word nincompoop because I, I don't think they're dumb. Right. Or it, I just think that they disagree with me for reasons that I try to convince them otherwise. So that's an important thing to say. The reason I think that's important is um I don't think you're surrounded by liberals. You think you are surrounded by liberals. Oh. There are if I'm the most liberal guy on campus, that's a sad, sad state of affairs. But I understand from your location on the spectrum, you would identify that most of the folks, for example, in your work life or most of the folks in your religious life represent a point of view that is vastly further left than your own. That's right. And this is a good place to to perhaps remind listeners of some nomenclature. So there is such a term as progressive, 
Right. And that's what I, that's the term I use to describe the left. The term liberal gets dicey because classical liberals sure. is another name, another label for libertarians, which I am. But most people, when they say liberal, do not mean classical liberal. They mean progressives. They mean so, progressives. Yeah, right. so I will, I will use the term progressives to refer to the left and libertarian or classical liberal to refer to me. Sure. Okay. So – I have, in earlier versions, earlier episodes, have um, come out loudly as a libertarian. So let me tell you, let's get down to some very concrete brass tacks. When I object to state-sponsored redistribution of wealth, particularly when it comes to entitlement or welfare programs, some common responses I get, and I'll just read through these four and then go back to the to them is number one don't you care about sick people don't you care about needy people don't you care that's the first one the second one is uh well if you intend for charity and philanthropy to be what helps people who are in need there's no way that that can help enough so we need to involve the state to make sure everyone gets taken care of Relying on individuals and charities won't work because people are selfish. Mm-hmm. Number three, um, Christians also say to me, hey, remember, we are commanded in both Old and New Testaments to care for orphans, care for widows, care for people who are in prison, care for the poor. We are commanded to care for the poor. How can you object to welfare, etc.? And finally, um, the fourth one, which sometimes is just uh, included in people's arguments and not said, not stated plainly, is that greed needs to be thwarted. Mm. So if a person is doing very well in the marketplace and gathering lots of revenues and profits, then that person needs to have the state redistribute some of his or her wealth. Because greed is um – a vice, a plain vice, a clear uh, yeah, vice. Yeah, that um, this would be similar to the view that if we've got rampant um, fornication going on, we need to set up laws to, to help people do a better job of keeping their pants on, right? <laughs> or if <laughs> if you have um, a lot of murder going on, we need to have laws that that are set in place to mitigate those vices. Greed would be one of those vices that needs to be socially managed. That's right. And I think I will say something about this one first. I I have had Christians uh, in discussion with me when we talk about the fact that income tax is progressive in nature. And I'll say, you know, what did X person or X corporation the fact that they did so well in the marketplace, why should that cause them to have more money taken from them? And the most common answer I've gotten is, well, they can afford it. And they're not saying, well, because greed needs to be thwarted. But I think that that is bound up in that answer. Oh, so um, they can afford it is not a Christian response. I mean, that's not informed by, Christ- by any text. Well, well, but what I you're think saying it might is be, though. I think it might be. There may be something deeper which is the fact that they can afford it is a problem because they have been greedy. Correct. I got gotcha. you. Correct. And I've even poked people with an, 
not an actual stick, but perhaps with my finger. Maybe you should. I, maybe I should. Uh, I've poked them to say, tell me why anyone who is successful in the marketplace needs to be adjusted in that way. And finally, I have made some people say, because it's not possible to become wealthy unless you are mistreating people. So now that is Marxist. It's not, it's not, that is not a Christian response. That is a response right. based on, Christ, on Marxist principles that you can only become rich if you exploit people. But a lot of Christians have said that to me. I, I say a lot. I've gotten that from some Christians. And you think there's a deeper theologically informed view of the violence in the system. <laughs> uh, yes, I know what you're thinking of there. I, I think that somewhere in the back of that is we cannot allow greed to go unchecked because it harms people in ways that are unchristian. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, <clears throat> the reason I find this one very compelling, your, your, your point of view on that fourth, yeah. is I do believe there's violence inherent in the system, but I am very uncomfortable with, and I think I've shared this already in the past, but I'm very uncomfortable with the laws that try to set up some sense of virtue within the community that are not really virtues. So, you know, having laws against adultery to me are not really creating virtue. They're just punishing people who commit adultery. Right. So having laws against greed is not really stopping greed. It's merely criminalizing some population that we want to criminalize or punish. So that structure makes me very uncomfortable. So I'm having to rethink, as you're talking, I'm having to rethink my <laughs> my position on point number four. I know how I feel about the other three, but point number four, I'm going to have to think more about. Well, that means that my getting up this morning was a good idea <laughs> if you've had to rethink something. Uh, let me start with the very first one because I think it's the one that can be disposed of the most quickly. When people say to me, you know, how can you not support Obamacare? How can you not support any type of national minimum income or the, a, a raise in the minimum wage or so forth. They say, don't you care about poor people? How can you not vote for this? How can you not rally for this? And how can you even voice against it? Don't you care about sick or poor people? And to me, that is generally where I start with people when they don't know me very well or they haven't, to be honest, they haven't, uh, they're kind of new to the political frame. Or they're new to libertarianism because they, they often have looks on their face or tones in their voice that is they are bewildered that I could believe the way I do as a Christian. And so to me, the answer to that is pretty simple. Um, you can care about sick and poor and hurting people and people who don't have enough money and people who have um, homes with single parents raising children poorly. You can care about all those things and have solutions for all those things that have nothing to do with the state or its coercive nature. And I think a lot of people who ask me that, don't you care about sick people, have never thought about very, very much other solutions than state-sponsored solutions, or at least they haven't thought about it to the extent that um, they can articulate it very well. I'm not calling these people dumb. I'm not calling them uncritical. I'm just saying I generally talk to people with that response who have not 
thought much about the libertarian position. Well, and I think it's coming from someplace that I know we're not going to talk about abortion, mm-hmm. but the same thing happens for folks from the right who ask a person, how can you be a Christian and vote for someone who supports abortion, right? Because we believe in life, and don't you believe that life is precious, and it comes from God, and yada. Mm-hmm. And I can come up with, um, depending on where I am on a political spectrum, I can come up with any set of arguments to justify being a Christian and and excusing, not excusing the wrong word, finding a way to integrate some point of view or political position that does not fit. It's a square peg in a round hole. And um, we're all doing this. So I think part of the reason that these kinds of discussions come up is not just because people haven't thought about them. They're coming up because you threw out um, a theological argument about abortion, so I'm going to return with a theological argument about feeding the poor. Or you want to have a theological argument about uh, you know, marriages between a, a woman and a man because God said so. Okay, if you're going to say God said so, God said some other things about taking care of the poor. So I don't think it's fair to just say that this is people uncritically thinking. I think they're engaging in a discourse that you and I would reject the discourse writ large. But the discourse is happening in ways that that launch polemics through theological arguments, and you give me a theological argument to support a left position, and I'll give you a theological argument to support a right position, and then I'll suggest that, well, the one for the left position has a lot more texts available Mm -hmm. than the one for the right, right? Well, this one's Old Testament, and this one's New Testament. So there's a game being played here. I I think you're right. People aren't thinking about it, but they are thinking about something else. Yeah, and I want to be real careful to make sure I don't characterize these folks. Yeah, right. As being uncritically minded. Okay, good, good, good. I, I mean, when you say libertarian to most of the people what I meet, what, whom I meet for the first time, they either think of Ron Paul, right, Ayn Rand, right, or nothing at all. <laughs> they think, what is? What are you talking about? What is a libertarian? So, because I I work at a university where I have waves and waves of new people I'm meeting every year. Well, uh, let's also be clear that Ayn Rand is not a representative of your point of view either because Rand Rand believes that charity is and that it creates social ill. I mean, that's not in Fountainhead, but in Atlas Shrugged, those who participate in acts of charity are ruining society. Well, when I said that that's what people think of, I didn't mean to indicate they were thinking of it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think people hold up Opponents of libertarianism hold up Ayn Rand and say, "Look how look how terrible this is," and oh, so they they right, arrive at right, the university right. perhaps having read synopses of Atlas Shrugged and saying, "Oh, if he's a libertarian, he must be associated with that horrible woman we heard about in high school or so forth." Right, and and I will and I will also say that just so we don't throw Ayn Rand into a trash can, right, <laughs> where many libertarians connect with her is in Fountainhead, Mm -hmm. which is really, um, I think, a more nuanced and careful. It's not great, but it's more nuanced than Atlas Shrugged. I will tell you that there's, I have a colleague who teaches uh, a class called The American Novel every year. And he, he asked me one time if I wanted to guest speak and so forth. And I said, I think you should have them read The Fountainhead. 
So it's taught in the fall, and he tells them over the summer, you should. This book is six or seven hundred pages, so you should start now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and I go in and we have a great discussion with these students who are all really upset that they had to read this huge book that seems to be pointedly polemic. Mm-hmm. And we have a great discussion about it. That's an aside, but I wanted to agree with you about Fountainhead being a little bit more representative. So let me move to the second. Yeah, we've only done one I so know, far. But the second one is what almost always follows. Is right. When I have someone say, don't you care? And I say, yes. Of course I care about people who are ill or poor or don't have what they need, but I think that that is the job of the church and philanthropists and others who are willing. It is not the job for a state coercive principle. And they undoubtedly say, well, if we depend on individuals to give to help people, it's not possible that enough people would ever get helped because people are inherently selfish, they think of themselves. Or they might even say, well, how was that working out before welfare systems came around in the 1930s and so? Well, so that usually has me enter into a discussion that's going to involve some terms that I need you to help me unpack, Scott. The terms that I'm going to put on opposite ends are ideological principles and consequential principles. Mm. And we use terms like deontological right. to mean ideological and ontological to mean consequential. So there are – you can think of it in kind of a triangle um, between uh, principles or laws or sometimes natural law is in, is in one corner of that triangle. Um, virtue uh, or values would be in another corner of that triangle. Um, which is we often referred to as aritaic kinds of ethical thinking. And then there is this third um, corner of the triangle, which is really the outcomes. We make decisions about what is good based upon what makes the best outcome. So some of those might be the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Thank you, Spock. <laughs> Spock was a utilitarian, I believe. Yeah, well, that is a perfect utilitarian argument. Yeah, it really is. Or um, the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. So there is a set of what we might call outcomes or ontologies or um, consequences consequences Mm -hmm. that sometimes are a means by which we argue what a good is. And that is something you're not very moved by. Correct. Uh, Libertarians often hold up laws and principles that we believe are the best ones, regardless of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying to a person who, who says to me, yes, but if you relied on individuals to help and to provide charity, then people would not be helped. What that person is saying is, we need laws that's go- that are going to help the most people, even if that means state coercion to take your real wages away from you by penalty of jail and giving it to people that we decide are poor. Even if it means that, most of the people who provide the second argument believe that and are arguing that. And what I try to do is help them see that fact. So I will provide an extreme example. One of the ways to make Medicare go farther than it goes today is when every person in the United States turns 70 to shoot them and kill them. 
that would make welfare or that would make Medicare cover a lot more people in a lot more robust ways because there are a lot fewer people it has to cover. So why don't we then take everyone, here's your 70th birthday, please report to the chamber Mm. because you're now extinct. Why don't we do that? Well, because killing is wrong. Even if it helps the utilitarianism of the Medicare system, we should not kill people. So you've done the the classic college freshman philosophy course. (laughs) Ethical conundrum. (laughs) Right, right. Outcome arguments all by themselves are almost always terrible. As our law arguments that are all by themselves are almost all, always terrible. As our virtue arguments that are all by themselves almost always terrible. I think what we, what we tend to do is to triangulate between those three, right? I think that's what citizens do. I'm going to argue wow. that as a Christian, I'm going to say, hey there, opponent, it is never, ever appropriate for a Christian to see an a poor or a sick or a needy person and say as an appropriate response, we need to get the government to take other people's money to solve this. The Christian should say, a sick or poor or needy person is my responsibility and my church's responsibility and my fellow Christian's responsibility and anyone else whom we can persuade to help. It is our seeing a need in society is a moment for exigent persuasion, not a moment to involve the state to force others to help. And that is usually where I lose the interest of the person I'm speaking with, (laughs) because they are not ready. They're not ready to say, no, you're right. I want to give up state coercion and rather find other ways to help sick people. Most of them say, well, that's neat, and I could think about it for a while, but at the end of the day, I want sick people to get better and hungry people to be fed, even if that means taking away people's real property or money. So that's where we usually arrive at an impasse. Well, and I, I think you always miss out on some other when – you, when you reject the ontological, the consequence, yes. when you reject that as a, as a mode of triangulating – the good, I think you also miss out on some outcomes that you believe in. Do tell. Well, I think you believe that we would do a better job of caring for the poor if the government were out of the way. Do you? I mean, I've heard you say in this podcast, I need the government out of my way so I can care for the poor better than they do. I would help the poor better than the government helping a, but, the poor. But I guess my question is, does that mean that potentially – there's an outcome where the poor are better cared for because of good charity rather than good government. It's possible. It is also possible that they are not helped as well. And I, as a Christian, will be indicted if I do not help to the, to the extent of my ability and persuade others to. So what I'm saying, Scott, is that my position is deontological. It is virtue-driven. It is, as a Christian, it is inappropriate for me to go to the state and say, you got to take Scott's money in order to help the sick person, because it may help more sick people or it may not, but it's still inappropriate to harm you in that way to do so. Whether it helps fewer or more is irrelevant to my position about state coercion. 
Until you ever find evidence that it would. You're saying if I ever found out that moving away from state coercion toward individual responsibility did help more people, I would be using that as an argument. Right. Probably. <laughs> but, I, but the main argument I'd want to make is that it is, it is a step right. two argument, not a step one. <laughs> Probably. Okay, so regardless of the outcomes, Cole, Jesus told you to do this. Mm-hmm. So that gets us to point number three. Right. We are commanded to take care of the poor, of the orphan, of the widow, to plead the case of the widow, to take – we are commanded. And I believe that that is Jesus saying to his church, look around and take care of people. And Jesus had every opportunity to tell his apostles and anyone listening, this is how you're going to er- overturn Rome. This is how you're going to set up a state system that coerces people to help by taking their income away from them. He had every opportunity to do that. And instead, he said, you take care. You do it. And he's pointing at me, and he's pointing at the people who sit in my church and at Christianity all over the world saying, it's your job to do it. I would point out that the... There is no such thing as state-sponsored charity in the Roman Empire. So the command where Jesus says to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you're rendering your taxes, you're paying your coins, you're, you're obeying the state merely for its work to A, establish peace, the Pax Romana, and B, martial protection, right? That's really the function. Right. The function of the state is to keep us from being overrun by some other state. Right. And to keep the peace. Right. So there is not a political system that I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with you to some level. When Jesus says pay your taxes, he does not say pay your taxes because they take care of the poor. Right. Right. There's no there is no taking care of the poor. Right. Having said that, that's Rome. You're going to need to help me think through two elements of Scripture. One is the Old Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's consistent, especially in the prophets, that the nation is judged not by whether they have abortion, not by whether they have good uh, fiduciary policy, not based upon what their tax structure is, not based on anything except the degree to which they care for the widows and the orphans and the poor among them. That the when we talk about Deuteronomy law or when we talk about the prophets, whenever we talk about any kind of instruction throughout the Old Testament, the thing things come back to centrally time and time and time again is that people of God act in ways that protect the poor and that the people of God do this through the state. So let me set aside the New Testament for a second and give you a chance to respond to the Old Testament theocracy issue. Yeah, you said through the state, right. and I want to point out that you mean through the theocratic state right. of the nation of Israel who was following God. The nation of Israel were not told, go find the Midianites, the Amorites, the and force them to take care of the poor by threatening them by penalty of jail to give part of their income. God was saying to the Israelites, you have got to take care as a nation, of, as a theocratic nation that exists as my people, you've got to take care of 
the widows and the poor. Well, I think that's the primary argument. Many of the examples of the reasons why and God's wrath against the nations is because they have failed to do it in their nations. So in Amos 1 through, actually chapters 1 through 5, you have these um, warrants against other nations because they fail to take care of their poor. Well, yeah, and if you wanted to convince me <clears throat> that, that uh, whatever country you would like to name is not taking care of its poor people, and that's displeasing to God, I will agree with you 100%. Wait, 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 wait. You will? I will agree that God is displeased if Russia is not taking care of Russian, if Russian individuals oh, you're are not, not taking about care. The, you, it's not the state. I'm not saying the state. Got that's it. right. That's right. Christians in 2018, Christians are God's people. God's people better be taking care of the poor. But Christians lobbying the state to make everyone pay for the poor, I think, is inappropriate. Okay. It's just that this – I understand this is the libertarian view. It's just that other conservatives who would not qualify themselves as pure libertarians will say, hey, aren't we God's country? As soon as you make warrants that say we need to bring God back to the United States – as soon as things become in any way theocratic, then I think the conservative has lost because there is – do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I, I'm going to just really quickly say libertarians do not accept the label conservative. Really? I didn't we know We are this. fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Socially liberal. Yeah, that's a big difference because okay. we, we weren't chanting, make America great again. Right. But I think for those of us who are arguing – hey, your position of fiscal conservatism yes. and low taxes sounds an awful lot like a bunch of white guys who wear dark suits, white shirts, and red ties. Mm -hmm. And they are making the same argument while also saying we're God's favored nation. Yeah, libertarians reject that out of hand, just summarily. I just don't hear them rejecting it very often. I hear you rejecting it, but I don't hear libertarians summarily rejecting well, it. Well, I don't know. Honestly— Maybe I don't listen to them enough. Well, this, that, was, that was what I was going to say. This is not a snarky comment. Libertarians' voices are hardly ever heard. I can drink that in one gulp because we have the same problem from my side. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. You occasionally will hear— libertarian voices rise to the top. I mean, honestly, when Ron Paul was on the docket as a potential Republican presidential candidate, he said things that a lot of people were hearing for the very first time. Even seasoned politicians were scratching their heads right. thinking, "How wait, wait a minute, how can you be against Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't figure out who he was. Right, <laughs> which I thought was awesome. <laughs> so, your theocratic um, theocratic argument is is well articulated, and I do hear that where people cite scripture, and I, I want to remind them, yes, those are directives that God expects his people to do. I would say, um, from my point of view, we are not God's nation. We are not a theocracy, nor did he ask us to be one. That's right. Man, that's important. So if that's the case, you know, the baby does get thrown out with the bathwater on this. It's not our godly responsibility to care for the poor, nor is it our godly responsibility to make sure pot is illegal, right? Right. That, um, it's not even our godly responsibility to ensure that abortion is illegal. It's not too, well, it's not our godly responsibility, that's right. You would say it is still a constitutional requirement. 
to make abortion illegal. The citizen part of me says we right. should not permit murder. Right. And that is not a Judeo-Christian law I'm trying to shove into the secular law. That is a secular law by itself. And I think we would both agree that we have a Christian responsibility to persuade people not to get abortions. Correct. That's correct. So the part of me that is so able, in my mind, to divide the Christian from the citizen, mm-hmm. I don't think abortion should be illegal because God doesn't like it. I think that abortion is wrong because God doesn't like it, but right. I think it should be illegal because it's murder. And the part of me that is a citizen wants a law on the books that says and uh, that says you can't murder and you're punished if you do. That's the citizen part of me. Because that violates – for you, it violates the Constitution. Uh, yes. And if – which is I agree with you. We shouldn't have a law in the United States saying you can't commit adultery. I think that God is displeased if you commit adultery, but I'm not trying to put laws in because they displease God. The citizen part of me says, we're not trying to put laws in that please God. We're trying to put laws in that are minimal protections from harm and so forth. I will mention really, really quickly a little bit of ontology, a little bit of consequentialism that I I often don't make this argument because I don't want to get into the consequential mess, Mm -hmm. but I will make – I will – just mention it here. When people say, if you didn't have uh, welfare and entitlement programs, you would have all the poor people and sick people living on the street. You would have them not taken care of. And I want to say, let's look at how much money the government takes from my paycheck and your paycheck and everyone's paycheck as it is, and let's look out on the street. You have sick people and homeless people and people whose needs are not taken care of, as it is. Um, so the part of me that wants to argue how bumbling and inefficient the state is, I often keep that part quiet because it is a consequential argument. I think the state is completely ill-equipped. As Adam Smith said, the man of system cannot cannot do nearly the work that individuals making choices that are local can make as far as efficiency of things, it just cannot happen. And the second thing I'll say before I turn it over that's that's consequential is I often hear, do you realize what a small percentage of the national budget entitlements comprises? Mm-hmm. You know, Do you realize what you're arguing about is just a tiny slice of the pie? You know, I often get really mad because George Bush gave the National Endowment of the Humanities a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And I get mad that Michelle Obama um, and the Department of Agriculture set aside $4.3 million to promote farmers' markets, to promote them as a superior way to get vegetables and fruits. And I'm thinking, if your argument is that $4.3 million over here and a million dollars is such a small part of the budget, how can you get upset at that? Well, I wanted to say, I wonder what the Atlanta Food Bank would do with $4.3 million as opposed to promoting farmer's markets. Both of them are about food. Think of what they could have done with that money, A. And B, if a robber breaks into my house, points a gun at my head, and steals a nickel, I'm still going to be upset about it. It's still an uninvited, egregious act to take what is mine away. So... Those are two quick consequentialist arguments that I don't make very often because I don't want to get on that road with people. I also think that it's important 
I'm, I'm about to uh, I'm about to fly my flag. Getting jiggy with it. Yeah, get jiggy. With it. <laughs> <laughs> but before I do, I think the other thing I want I want to say in defense of the libertarian point of view is we have done a fine job in first world countries of hiding the cancers of poverty, of inequity, of marginalization. We are experts at pushing this stuff out from under our noses and into communities where we don't have to deal with it. I think I have told the story on this podcast of a time when um, very well-known um, politician in Dallas uh, we were at Starbucks at the same time. We weren't there together, but we were at Starbucks at the same time. A deaf person came into the room asking for handouts and with a little card, and, and uh, the, this politician yelled at him in her loudest voice and said, go to the homeless shelter. She was bothered that this guy was in her Starbucks is really what the problem was. He was interrupting her conversation with her other liberal friends. And it was a perfect illustration to me that really what we're interested in here is making sure that the homeless go to the homeless shelter so they're not under my nose, right? So one of the consequences of doing things in the libertarian ways is that I may have somebody putting up a tent in the vacant lot across the street from my house, and I'm going to have to deal with the realities of poverty rather than pushing it off in some ghetto somewhere where I can say to myself and, you know, lull myself to sleep and say, we've taken care of the poor because I don't see the poor. When I lived in Hawaii, we did this when our tent communities were in places where the rest of us didn't have to hang out and look at the tent communities. There is a level of hypocrisy going on from many of us, many of us on the left, where we say we're taking care of poverty. What we're really doing is hiding it in places that are less conspicuous, and I get to walk between my house and the campus and visit my Starbucks without homeless people having urinated in the middle of the, uh, of the sidewalk, right? When I listen to a lot of liberals, um, for example, in the San Francisco area, they will note that, isn't it a shame our city is just this defecate everywhere? What I really hear in that complaint is, you wish you didn't have to deal with the mess of homelessness, right? If it's out of sight, it's something I don't have to deal with as much. We just take a little of my money and make my life a lot better. That is a... It's a trade-off I'm willing to make. So um, I want to be really clear that I don't think a lot of folks on my side of the spectrum necessarily care about the poor. Um, they care about not wanting to trip over a homeless person on their way to Starbucks. But that is very different than caring about the poor when it starts to matter, when it starts to get into the middle of my day, when it starts to cost me something instead of costing coal something or instead of costing a corporation something. I don't know. I've ranted here. What do you think? I'm ready to hear more. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that we do not have a corner on the virtue market. I see. I see. You're There's no virtue in this. In many cases. I mean, do you remember when Thoreau uh, and, uh, and Walden Thoreau talks a lot about the hypocrisy of charity? I think I think he's on to something. I'm not of his ilk, but I totally think he's on to something that there is a hypocrisy in charity. 
Before we go any further, I just want to note that um, more egalitarian or progressive views do not have a corner on virtue. Got that's, it. That's all I think Okay. that rant is supposed to serve. Thank you. So, Scott, talk about I, – I began this podcast by talking about how I can re, uh, separate my libertarianism from my Christian right. principles. How do you separate your socialist libertarian is, I think, how you term yourself. Yeah, I would like to – where I would like to go with this is I would like to suggest that um, I do separate them. My socialism is not informed oh, – I think it's informed by my Christianity, but my Christianity is not informed by my socialism. How's that? Okay. But I would like to challenge you to think about being comfortable with the separation. That's where I would like to challenge, is I don't, I don't know that it is always the right answer to find ways to say, hey, I have my participation in the state – and that's separate from what Jesus wants me to do. Because I think you've hit on something that involves Jesus, bringing Jesus into the state, into your participation in the public square. It's not in terms of determining what laws are written. Oh, I hear you. But it is determined by what persuasion happens in the public square. I think I know right where you're going, and, and thank you for bringing this up, because I do, I do often say this to people as I'm discussing this, this carefully woven issue, and that is a libertarian state, which I would describe as one that has very, very small government that mostly leaves you alone, is the state that most allows me to be a Christian Right. It most allows me to exercise my Christianity. Roughly 35% of the money I can earn at my job, I am not able to use for my own purposes. Roughly 35%. I have to give it to other people or, or else go to jail. And, in, and to me, that's a crime. So I think of it in terms of if my number one goal is to be a Christian, what kind of state most allows that? And the answer to me is not anarchy or anarchism, but libertarianism, because they're, they're, the libertarian government says, hey, do what you want as a religion, except harm other people with harm narrowly construed. And that's what I can get on board with as a Christian. But we've talked about this before. If you lived in North Korea, you still are a Christian. You're no less a Christian, right? I cannot behave as I feel Christian Christians should behave if I'm in North Korea or yeah. China. And this is uh, – it's one thing to talk about your distributing your money as you wish. It's another thing to talk about having um, – living in a state where you can distribute your rhetoric wherever yes, you wish. Yes, that's right? right. So That's part of behaving as a Christian. Yeah. It's not just helping a poor I can person imagine, with money. But. I can imagine that my view that – really this is about persuading it would be very difficult in a place where you didn't have the freedom of speech for right. example right but having said that i um you know i do find myself of the view that i am afforded an opportunity by the state to persuade my brother and to persuade my sister to change their hearts so i am less concerned about setting up laws that help us reach some um, perverted form of virtue, 
right? Let's go, let's, it's absurd. So let's do the absurd first. I'm not interested in a law that says you may not commit adultery because if you didn't commit adultery, that doesn't mean we don't have a problem. <laughs> it just means you didn't perform an act. Right. Right. And I think it's super crazy and it's very frustrating because when we start parsing out what is adultery, what is not adultery, what is concupiscence, what is not concupiscence, right? We have all of these legal definitions and that's never what we were supposed, we, you and me, brothers, were supposed to be about. So the adultery is a great example or making adultery illegal is a great example to me of a place where um, the law doesn't really get us where we where we needed to have gone as Christians in the public square. It doesn't even get us close. It's an absurd kind of homunculus <laughs> in comparison to the real uh, in of what the gospel has to offer. And so um, I, I'm not interested in taking your money because I think Jesus wants me to take your money. I just want to take your money and give it to the poor. And I'm very comfortable with the point of view that says, that's my politics, but that Jesus didn't tell me to take your money. I'm very uncomfortable with any argument where we say, well, this is what a country that belongs to God would do, because I don't think we're a country that belongs to God, which is why I think I exist in this time. I think God has created me in this time to be a voice in a country that does not belong to him. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm not uh, interested in a, a state that gives me license or gives me permission or facilitates in any way my Christian act. My Christian acts are irrespective of the state, and the state is absurdly irrelevant in that discussion. It's beside the point. Mm-hmm. But I'm still okay taking your money. Yeah, talk about what what is your response to a person who is poor in our society? Well, I have a three-layered view of this. Let's hear it. And the first layer is I wish with all my heart that the church had been. I believe the church is the first and best remedy for poverty. I think there are times in our history, particularly in the early history of the church, where we were remarkable emissaries for demarginalization. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there are stories of, you know, in Rome, they would ditch their babies to the side of the road if they were unwanted. That was an, a kind of a, an accepted practice where the Christians would pick them up. We're the foundation for nurses and hospitals and the whole idea of uh, charity as being um, a function within the state this is us. This is what we did. And I, I've already kind of yelled enough about my frustration that when the church just shrugs its shoulders and says, ah, let's just pay taxes instead, that we've already begun to fail miserably. When the church does that. Right. So the reason I'm a socialist is because the church has failed. Uh, so why don't you see your task... I have a very pointed question to that. Right. Why is your task not to turn to the churches with your persuasive opportunities? Why do you instead turn to the state 
and harm people? Because I'm going to argue that your tax laws harm me. Yeah, I know you argue that, and I think that you've used the word harm very generously. Too generously. Yeah. Okay. Secondly, um, why do I not just say to the church we need to do a better job? Yes. I do. Why don't you merely do that? Merely do that? I think that socialism is a political technology that um, emerges as a function of the failure of the church to answer the problems of society. And so I think a technology exists that... Okay. How do you see your current socialist views as different from the current leftist progressive views? Where do you differ in a few places? Well, um, keep in mind that I'm a socialist libertarian. Yeah, yeah. Right, so right. I believe, as you do, in the in the flourishing of the individual. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just believe that the market is one of those potential points of power that must be um, ultimately we need to take uh, strong consideration of. So um, there are, for whatever reason, and I'm sure that you know these reasons better than me, but for whatever reason, it is very expensive to go to the doctor. And if you don't have a lot of money, if you if you work at a job where you get paid very little money, you will have a diff, you will have difficulty getting good health care. I would like to ensure that I see health care as a as a, and I'm saying this as an American. I'm saying this as somebody who believes in the values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That taking a little bit of Cole's money to ensure that someone who makes minimum wage has access to basic, and I'll say basic, but basic health care, I'm all in. Uh, you believe that it is um, justifiable to take to rob me of some of my money for the defense of the state. You believe that? I wouldn't. I would not say that I'm robbing you. I'm saying you're fulfilling your constitutional duty. Yeah, and you're fulfilling your constitutional duty when we pursue the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for even the marginalized among us, even the poor among us, that education, that health care, that housing, shelter are basic human rights. A moment ago, you said I construed harm too generously. I'm saying now that you're construing those words too generously. Right, I know. So if I... If I don't make, if I, let's say I'm a Walmart greeter. Okay. Right? And I make minimum wage as Mm -hmm. a Walmart greeter Mm -hmm. working 20 hours a week. Yes. Uh, Do not tell me I shouldn't have had children. You know what I'm about to say. I have children. Okay. What do I, do my children not get an education? Well, I'm going to try to make this short because we could go a long way. But first of all, why are you not working full time? Okay, that's a fair question. If if you don't have full-time availability where you are, why aren't you moving? Okay. Why aren't you doing whatever it takes to work full-time? And why aren't you going to community college at night to improve yourself? Wait, community college is supported by the state. Okay, why aren't you going why aren't you doing anything, apprenticing or doing anything to become more valuable to an employer? And why did you have kids before you were in a situation to afford them? You can't say ignore that question. That is a primary question that literally no one in our society is asking. Instead, they're saying no matter how you got children or how many you have, here is chip, here is snap, here is everything you need for yeah. the kids. And that is incentivizing people to not think of the question, should I or should I not have children? But you think I'm thinking about the Walmart greeter, and I'm not. 
I'm thinking about the kid. Yes. The kid okay. exists as okay. an ontological reality. Are you ready? Yes. Are you well, ready? let me finish. The kid exists as an ontological reality, whether he should have been alive or not, mm-hmm. whether the parents should have chosen to have him or That's not, right. whether the parent chooses to get an education or not. The kid exists as an ontological reality. Correct. And I think most libertarians, I will speak for myself, okay. but I think many would agree, that one of the few state agencies we would agree to have is Child Protective Services because children cannot exercise fully their rights as, a, as an American. And I think it is totally appropriate to say to a person who has children who are not getting the food, health care, and education that they need, the state is going to take care of your child, and it will take care of your child at other people's expense, but only after it takes care of your child at your expense. And if that means that we garnish your wages for the next 70 years, we're going to do it because you had a child you could not afford, and you're going to pay for it before anyone else does. But your child will have what, it, what that child needs. So I agree with you that children should be taken care of, even by the state, at taxpayer expense. But the, there have to be the consequences of the person who brought the child into the world without being able to afford it. And you know what, Scott? That would even give churches the ability to say, hey, Scott's been going to our church, and we love him, and his child was taken away because he couldn't afford it. Uh, to feed it because he was a Walmart greeter years ago, and now he's doing better or whatever. He owes the government $50,000, and we are now going to pay for it. One thing I want to assert overtly is my uh, belief, and I think justifiable belief, that you care about the poor. Thank you. Right. (laughs) Because I do. That that you believe that the state should the, the state should not be involved in mitigating poverty and i believe that the state should be involved in mitigating poverty is not really an expression of our faith because we have a responsibility to the poor regardless of what the state does or doesn't do that's well said right so if we have an obligation to the poor regardless we still have the same job no matter what the state's solutions are And I think the reason that progressives, as you've described them, need to listen to your point of view is that I think it saves us from the failure of assuming that because I paid my taxes, Jesus should be happy, right? Or because I made Cole pay his taxes, (laughs) that Jesus should be satisfied. Um, If we... Uh, if we got to a place where we took all the money from all the billionaires and gave it to the poor, we didn't do anything for Jesus. I think we did it for ourselves. The state did, right, in the, in the terms of the state. Yes. Meanwhile, you and I have a responsibility in the public square to be persuasive about caring for the poor, about being persuasive about caring for the the condition of marginalized populations. We have that response to, to persuade people not to have abortions. We have those responsibilities. And we have to engage in the public square, but we engage in the public square in ways that persuade, not that set up rules. Correct. Absolutely. Even though I'm still going to vote for rules. Right. Right. And I will vote to eliminate rules, but we still have a responsibility to care for the poor and do so in our daily lives.